welcome to the next season. Welcome. Season everyone. two. Yeah, season two. Here we are at our podcast, Land and People. Um, I'm Melissa Kamara. I am a conservationist and artist on Hawaii Island. And I am Clay Trowernick, extension specialist dealing with ecosystems and fire in the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management. I know we're going to be interviewing some of our peers, but we actually started off with interviewing some of our, our mentors right here at University of Hawaii in Manoa. Clay and I are, are sitting here together. In live. It's live. Live. And um, we have for you today, Dr. Mark Merlin. And Dr. Mark Merlin has been teaching here at University of Hawaii in many different areas, ethnobotany, geography. He just marked his 50th year. Right. Well, I was a botany student. I did my master's degree there. And that's when I met Dr. Merlin. One of the classes that he taught, so many people have gone through here, uh, is the environment of Hawaii, Mm -hmm. um, Hawaiian natural history. And so that has four non-majors. And so a lot of people you run into know Dr. Merlin from that class. It's one of the most popular, one of the more popular popular classes here at the university. Um, and then a little more infamous for his uh, hallucinogenic plant class. Yeah. <laughs> and so especially for a lot of the botany students, right, thinking about what, what you're going to study and all the things that you could study, you know, the, to learn about Dr. Merlin. He, he was kind of a, a local legend, really, of his contribution. And we'll learn about that, like really what how he was able to give back. Yeah, I think of him as really making accessible just the really important story of Hawaiian natural history, the native plants, the native birds. I mean, you hear in an earlier episode, uh, Pauline Sato talk about taking his class and seeing the Hawaiian honey creeper slides and learning about these native birds that we never grew up seeing or hearing or knowing. And that is really like his legacy of still bringing those stories to students, like, you know, five decades on. What's really cool from my perspective as not a botany person, but married to one and <laughs> many friends who are, is this connection between plant use and people and that intimacy, which Clay and Dr. Merlin talk about, you know, in detail in other places in the Pacific, which is really cool. Like we got to hear about Pompeii. And to me, what's so cool about Dr. Merlin and the work he does is that it's, it is, it's been making these this knowledge accessible yeah. and and giving back to these communities and, and like as he was saying like through the sort of imposition of western education systems and all of this is like how can you help ensure that those relationships and that knowledge related to plants or as it relates to plants uh, you know is maintained and I think that's the thing that he's most excited about I think as well it's just the work that he's put into doing that this goes beyond or not counted towards like your scientific publications or whatever, but it just has such a uh, bigger impact um, working with these communities where he has uh, across the world. Just a heads up to you'll also hear a little bit. We start touching on fire because yeah. we're really kind of still reeling in the aftermath of the Lahaina fire uh, that just happened, these Maui fires. And it's just to give some context if this, whenever this comes out or you're listening to this. Um, and so that, that sort of, we start touching on that, but I think for all of our sanity, we, we don't don't really delve too much into that. Uh, um, yeah, we, we really wanted to draw on um, um, Dr. Merlin's expertise about working with plants and people throughout the Pacific, which, which you'll get to hear about. We're really excited to, to share with all of you. So with that, uh, 
We'll introduce our next guest, Dr. Mark Merlin. Professor in the School of Life Sciences in the Botany Program. Enjoy. I'm here at the request of these two scholars and uh, scientists. Hacks. Um, no, I expose myself for what little I know after 50 years at the University of Hawaii. Oh More than that, gosh. but um, this is my 50th year full-time faculty member. That's wow. unbelievable. I just, right now, there's a need for the classes. I like the socialization and... The students have generally given good feedback. One of the problems they have is I mumble occasionally, and that's something that's uh, gotten uh, a little worse with uh, as I've gotten more mature rather than <laughs> college <aging. laughs> I'm going to bring humor to this if possible because Please. I find that, especially in, in, with today's uh, situation, and Dr. Clay was on. I'm calling you Clay. If that's okay. That's perfect. He loves it me. when you talk. Call him Dr. T. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. T, Dr. Clay. <laughs> Dr. Clay was uh, quoted in the paper and said really all the things that are necessary within the space they gave him about the tragedy that's befallen the major sections of Hawaii, its history, its people of various kinds, and um, exposed our economy and our infrastructure to the problems that many other places are going to have to deal with. When it happens in paradise, it's a big deal. But it happens in other places that are not as fortunate to have the kind of lifestyle and economy that we have in Hawaii. So the world needs to think about this in more serious aspects of preventing this. And it's a major shift in our, as we plow our way through the anthro Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. There's so many questions I want to ask actually both of you about that, but before we get to that, can we ask the first question on our our list here, Clay? Do you do you want to? Yeah, just given you know you've done so much work in so many places on so many different things, and our connection obviously is through the botany department here and plants and studying plants. And I'm just curious, just how you know growing up, where you're from, your upbringing, like how did you connect to the work that you do and the places that you you know care so much about? First of all, I know. Uh, a little bit about a lot, and not very much about anything. But that's why I chose in a, a world that's becoming more and more um, specialized and people trying to find their niche uh, to take an ecological concept. My niche is basically trying to bring different disciplines together, interdisciplinary, and get a perspective of when we talk about a hurricane, when we talk about a famine, when we talk about a medicinal plant breakthrough that uh, gets cut off because of maybe Big Pharma, like Kava, uh, we, these uh, are big time issues and they involve a lot of different aspects, politics, economics, philosophy, botany, and if not the most important, really ecology, which is the science of interrelationships. And that's what, as far as I can tell, whatever, even if you we skip any religious background and influences that I might have or you might have, an objective reality is the interconnection of everything, and uh, that can backfire on us when we don't pay attention to the long-term impact uh, of our actions. Mark, that's such a global point of view, and it's so much the antithesis of like where we are today in every discipline. Like, how did you 
How, how did you come to that point of view? It really came about in the mid-60s to late-60s for me. Now, I was born, are you ready for this, in 1943, in the middle of the war, uh, in a place called Hollywood. Uh, and that's not Hollywood in Alabama or Minnesota, but in uh, Southern California. My Everybody in my uh, immediate and extended family, more or less, were, were involved in the entertainment industry. Movies, radio, television, um, and assorted uh, book reviewing, writing, books, um, even the National Enquirer. I mean, the full gamut. As I look back on it, I fondly, I knew there were times when I felt like I was getting chased by bullies. Other times it might be the reverse. It growing up in an urban environment, which uh, was a ghetto of its own kind and other ghettos. And so uh, the pressure of racism, uh, whether it was against anti-Semitism or against um, the color of one's skin uh, and culture, those were things that my parents uh, taught me to be aware of and to think about justice and f fairness and equality and so forth. So how did ethnobotany come into Well, it didn't really. I got um, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, uh, interested in so many things. Sports was a major aspect of my life, but then a very important aspect of uh, uh, the philosophy of Buddha is that one of the Eightfold Path uh, aspects is to right association, who you hang out with. And, you know, I hung out with some people that, uh, you know, got me in a little trouble, and then I hung out with people who were uh, outstanding uh, students and athletes, and I felt I chose that path, and that helped a lot. Got into the University of California. That worked out well. Then went to UCLA, involved in working in Hollywood. I was an extra during summers. I worked on Elvis Presley movies. Believe it or not, Viva Las Vegas. <laughs> Two um, mundane uh, shows like uh, My Three Sons. Oh, wow. To um, the I Love Lucy show, and we're gonna be going back like through the through the video archives, looking <laughs> looking for Dr. Merlin. <laughs> but but in '67, after a number of issues and spending a, a half a year in Europe and North Africa, and giving me a, an objective perception of my own country, I started back to finish up at Santa Barbara, and I got it exposed to Rachel Carson and the environmentalists and the mentors and the people that I decided to hang around with then were interested in, in geography and ecology and the natural sciences. And I could see where we were headed back in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. And so I came to the University of Hawaii because I had, for a special ceremony, I won't get into that, but uh, it has to do with my first marriage. But uh, I decided I wanted to go back to, to Hawaii. I got a teaching assistantship in geography and taught physical geography for a couple of years, which tied it all together with my historical background. I studied history and decided that it was mostly about generals and, and big battles and not about what we'd have done to the earth with fire, yeah. Yeah. with the word, which all started with the word and language and then mm -hmm. fire and then... Uh, essentially hunting big game and then essentially um, learning how to cultivate domesticated and uh, uh, change our entire lifestyle. So Deep history, the deeper yeah. history. That's the deeper yeah. history. Yeah. And from that time in the late 60s, I became very much interested in 
uh, educating myself first and then people about the ecological ramifications of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. The concepts then were the population bomb, uh, which, uh, you know, I was born with 2.7 billion people on the planet, roughly. Uh, and now there's, what, a eight, nine, ten. On our way there's to nothing nine. like this has ever happened in the space. And we kept saying it's going to double. Overall problem that I recognized was we've got this huge population. And people kept arguing there's plenty of space and more people and more, more people to sell things to. And that comes the second <laughs> issue, what we consume, materialism, yeah, yeah, and yeah, resources. Yeah. I want to know how the two of you connected, because you guys know each other. I mean, through your ethnobotany and um, master's degree, right? Yeah, it was okay. through my master's degree is when I would okay. have met. But I don't think I ever took any classes with you, but I would have just known oh, you as a grad oh. student. Okay. Because so I was with, working with Tamara Tickton at the okay. time. Was Tamara your mentor? Or your, yeah. In, in, actually in botany? Yes, yes. And so you were mentoring yeah. a couple of my fellow grad students at the time. Oh. And Clay, um, or, or I can remember first being interested in what he was doing is he had been, uh, had been, spent time uh, on the island of Pohnpei and uh, right after with, right after I finished my master's degree I went to Pompeii and that's when I connected with you because I knew you had written and were working with uh, Bill Rayner at the time dear Bill Rayner has passed on we worked together and produced uh, one of a series of six books I brought a couple in of the new updated editions of books on plants and people mm -hmm. in Micronesia so I, I came to Hawaii with the purpose of studying uh, geography because that discipline could allow me to move yeah. into the social yeah. social sciences, natural yeah. sciences, yeah. and management and or the natural world. And I tried to bring those together. But I became fascinated with Hawaii uh, and seeing what was happening in the changing environment mm. and early on recognizing the history of invasive species. <clears throat> what year was this when you were? 67, I started oh, wow. a graduate degree I finished in 69 and published okay. a master's degree on, of all things, marijuana. Wow. Nice. It was a historical um, reconstruction of hypothetical origins of human association with a multi-purpose plant. Mm -hmm. Think tea plant, not tea that you drink, uh, the key, mm -hmm. the uh, sacred plant of much of the Pacific, one of the sacred plants. But um, as a multi-purpose plant, and cannabis is a multi-purpose plant, so I thought that would be fascinating. And then I did a PhD on the opium poppy. I moved to the harder stuff, I tell people, to scare them <laughs> academically, academically. And uh, found that even a bigger issue. You know who the first recorded addict, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in history was Marcus. Marcus Aurelius Antonius. The philosophy of... Um, Caesar. He got sick and his doctor, who was a Greek doctor, they brought over these, we call them ethnobotanists or, or healers. Mm -hmm. Galen was brought from to be the, the special doctor for um, Marcus Aurelius. And he got sick, probably, you know, he got seven kingdoms. He must have got like, we, you know, could guess a flu or a, and, and he kept going, working, and probably got a secondary infection for a while. And he was in a lot of pain from coughing and headache. And Galen gave him some opium. He liked it. Hmm. But, um, Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> and There's a lot of stress with managing seven kingdoms. Yeah, you know? yeah. to take the alleviate the pressure. You're saying, where is this guy going? But that's ethnobotany. Right. And only, only it's historical, cultural um, reconstruction of these plants. Where did they come from? Mm -hmm. What are their you know, positive and negative aspects? 
Uh, nobody can deny that those two are worth billions and billions of dollars and have inspired billions and billions of problems of incarceration to all kinds of positive and negative things. Not necessarily because of the plants. They were just evolved to adapt to being dis, uh, pollinated, dispersed, and surviving in face of fire and everything else. So, meanwhile, I took over for Abraham P.E. Anaya. Abe asked me, could you teach my Hawaiian geography class in the early 70s? And Abe was a Hawaiian leader in the community of education. And so I was honored to have the class, and that forced me to even more intensely organize and fill in the gaps of my environmental history of Hawaii. Mm. How was it formed mm -hmm. um, geologically? climatologically, ecologically, and then what has been the role of humans in changing the environment. When I got to the <coughs> human role, I discussed plant use and so forth. Today they call them the canoe plants or the, mm -hmm. the transported mm -hmm. landscape, which I like, and which I talked about in terms of cannabis or opium poppy or kava. These are plants, sometimes they're not even nutritive in terms of nutrition, but our keystone, super important because of their social, ceremonial, ritual, mm -hmm. and putting people in a state that if they cognitively believe they're speaking to their ancestors yeah, right. who become their gods. Right. So I had a couple of really um, go get them students, you know, really were interested in the class who would come up and two of them more or less one in particular said those pictures of the plants where can I get a book on this I want to learn the Hawaiian plants myself and this was uh, half a century ago and I said um, <laughs> bing a little light bulb burst out of my uh, imaginary mind and I said a book the guidebook for the plants in the wild in Hawaii mm -hmm. so I did a guidebook called Hawaiian forest plants what I wanted to do was make people attracted to the pictures mm -hmm. If not first, not all of them, but s some of them, and say, well, you know, that's a pretty picture. What is it? It came out first in 1976 for the first book. A year later, I did one for the coastal plants of Hawaii. 77, their forest plant book is still in, in print and, and available. So go out and buy it, and I'll make three cents. <laughs> I'm not interested in that. You heard it here. Get out it's, there. <laughs> editions, but it's been viable for over 40 years. That's and great. the only kind of book that was available then was one on just the ornamentals. Right. And, yeah. and, and, the, and that's been the joy of the, these books is they're used in classes just by the average person, including people born and raised here who have several generations here that want to go out and get started. And they can say, well, you know, there's another name for uh, Howley Koa. It's Ekoa, you know, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera, which is fine. I wanted people to build on it. But it was most, those little books got me started on educational importance of getting out to a bigger, beyond the students in my class. And at the same time, there was a group of people that originally met at the Bishop Museum, about 40 of us, including people like, my long-term colleague, Sheila Conan, and um, people that were in management as well as UH professors and uh, important in the social, cultural fields of Hawaiiana, et cetera. We got together and discussed the need to produce in the curriculum, to be integrated into the school systems, public and mm -hmm. private if they mm -hmm. so choose, uh, to replace pine trees and yeah. squirrels yeah. with <laughs> yeah. trees and uh, honey creepers. And that happened. 
and was a big and it, Montalua Gardens took it over and it was led by a few individuals but we all contributed I contributed the geography upgrade and some of the geology upgrade to the level for to be taught in the fourth grade and then above that throughout the curriculum um, and that was probably one of the most in terms of joy and satisfaction the most significant endeavors besides the notoriety for writing about cannabis uh, <laughs> and that is a story in itself because it's <laughs> ethnobotany story it's a plant that has got more uses some would say than even coconut we view the leaders you know who's number one coconut you use every single part of it the, t the cannabis plant just about every single part and then there's the tea plant every single part yeah. and we got bamboo and a few others that if you were on an island you'd want those there could save your life make it more enjoyable, heal you, feed you, et cetera. So when did you, speaking of cannabis, when did you start teaching the uh, hallucinogenic and the ah. plants of the gods? I forget what the title is, but this was also well, kind of uh, I consulted uh, President Clinton on this because I said, look, <laughs> Bill, you never inhaled and I never inhaled. So, um, it's on the record. Say, yeah. Another one. I was finishing up at UCSB in 60s, late 60s, 66 into 67 was my last year there. And when I got really convinced about environmental issues going to be a focus, uh, whether it be endangered species, invasive species, um, use of fire. Uh, I grew up in you know, the Paso Robles, the pass of the oak trees, fire adapted species and uh, and they're in the cork family duh yeah. so they've got a protection and they have a advantage over other species that's the important thing with fire plants is you know the competitive advantage within the ecology and it's not just competitive advantage it's what do they provide ethnobotanically and the oak trees have of course wood and so forth but it's the acorn right right and that becomes the toy of the many many tribal groups mm -hmm. native American groups in California. And those okay. kinds of relationships worldwide were interest to me. And the overall duality, is it sustainable or is it a short-term gain? Fossil fuels. Yeah. Right, of course. You know, less than 150 years and look where we are. Uh, we've built some incredible structures, so forth. I mean, I'm so interested, because uh, I, I don't have a background in ethnobotany, but the two of you do, clearly, a deep, a deep one. What drives that interest in understanding humans in relation to plants and, and the environment? Like, you both grew up in urban areas, right? I mean, so it wasn't like you were out there, you know, having these familial relationships that, like, you know, Native people have, but, like, somehow that became of like deep interest to both of you. Well, first of all, I just learned, started learning about plants and they, to me, seemed so much more sophisticated, <laughs> right? Than like other, any other organism than animals, <laughs> like the problems they have to solve and the ways in which they yeah. solve. But then I think like that ethnobody, I mean, whatever you want to call it, it's really about that fundamental relationship that yeah. people have with plants. And I'm just thinking, all I can think about is like these books that you're talking about right. is just, that's that ability to try, or the need to reconnect people to the plants and like how that, and is an example in and of itself of just like reaffirming that relationship of people that they need to learn about them first and just kind of it gets back to the root of that of, of a you know a lot of the societal dysfunction is 
that separation. That separation, right? And this we've talked about this before, but this like kind of artificial separation between nature and society. And I think for me, wading through ecology and biology, you kind of came into ethnobotany as this little seed of, oh, this is a science that recognizes that they're connected, that it's that it's interconnected. And so, you know, how and the kind of research that was coming out of the field, um, I think is just vastly improving because now what you have is like indigenous scientists doing this and, and not validating anything, but just trying to tell these stories about, you know, if we lose this connection, we really got nothing, right? I mean, the acorns, whatever you want to talk about it, whatever comes into these like building blocks of our society, um, it can't be replaced by plastics. I mean, and you, and you also ended up in the Pacific too. I find it so interesting that you're both on Pacific islands, you know, far flung all over. It started in Hawaii for me because of a first visit here, and it was different, yet there were some similarities of my connection. But I, I was able to break free of the materialistic uh, um, world of accumulating more money and more things to come to Hawaii. And, um, but then I moved beyond Hawaii for comparative reasons, to mm-hmm. go to uh, the Cook Islands, to mm-hmm. Western Pacific, places like Samoa, and then um, all the way to Rapa Nui and various islands in between in the Society Islands and Marquesan Islands, but worked primarily in Micronesia, where clay is also worked in. Uh, we did some books there that were to try to reconnect the teachers with the students and their use so they wouldn't lose their traditional knowledge. Not that we're well, coming from the outside, we wanted to provide the vehicle in the school system that had been, that had been accepted following the foreigners coming in. In the case of Pompey, it was Spanish and Germans and Japanese and then Americans. Now they're on their own to a degree. What's happened is the great trends of the world really are, again, human population increase and material consumption. But the thing that's really important is urbanization. We've gone from 10%, you know, just a couple of dec- uh, centuries ago to over 50% of people are living in cities. And the microcosms are in these small Pacific islands. Micronesia refers to small islands. Some of them are high islands and get over 2,000 feet. Um, but basically, they're small islands, but they have their own unique cultures, and they've been existing for some cases, like Guam, perhaps three and a half thousand years, places like some of the atolls, which are the most um, threatened by global warming and sea level rise. People are moving into the urban areas because of everything from beer, videos, to services for older folks and medical. One of the main reasons we have a lot of older folks living in urban areas so they can be close to the medical needs that become more and more important as you get old. You can just... Ask me about that. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving right along. Uh, the urban, in case of the urban area, you've got these schools set up, and the teachers and the kids are coming from their parents who have taken service jobs, and they may be losing their knowledge of how to grow taros, different taros, as well as the one, the kalo here in Hawaii, but other breadfruits and yams, and uh, grow their sacred plants but now changing to where anybody can use it. And then the spread of things like betel nut, which I've just been working on for a book on ancient Micronesia, and kava, which is one, two islands that are very much like Hawaii only. There's shield volcanoes in the Eastern Carolines called Pohnpei and Koshrai. Koshrai, the Christian sect, came in and 
um, con converted the remaining small population that survived the ghastly deaths from the guns, germs, and steel that came in. The few hundred that were left in Kosrai were converted, and now you, you can't drink kava there. Whereas in Pohnpei, that didn't quite happen that way. And now, whereas in the past, mainly the high-ranking people had it to be able to show their rank and communicate with their ancestors and mm -hmm. keep balance mm -hmm. in their world, now anybody can use it. Women, men, kids, older folks, foreigners, etc. So there's a need, we felt, back in the late 80s into the early 90s, working with the teachers and informants, the cultural experts in these different uh, venues. And we did six books on uh, Kosrai, Pohnpei, Chuk, Yap, Palau, and the Marshall Islands. When I first showed up there, uh, and I went down to, I was working with the Conservation Society of Pohnpei and Bill, at yep. the time he was the Nature yeah. Conservancy, and I go into the office at Conservation Society of Pohnpei, and my friend, Roseo Marquez, who was working there, he said, he pulls out this tattered copy, and he's like, can you get us more of these? <laughs> <laughs> like we need more copies and it was great but <laughs> and I was like oh my god he just you know so Mark had given me yeah. some uh, photocopies you had photocopied versions still and that's why you had handed me a stack of them we were fighting for funds at the time and uh, uh, some places we ran into um, obstructions sometimes from people who were not even native to the area but are deeply involved and saw us as Carpetbaggers coming in to get a PhD and moving on, but right. the intention, at least in my part of it, and for most of the people, was to share with the people. We didn't make any extra money. We were on salary as professors, and we're supposed to be out doing research. What we were trying to do is share the research for hundreds, if not thousands, of years of them. These Pacific Islanders and what they knew about their plants and what they still knew, even if they're in the towns. But uh, the thing was to put that out there and see if they couldn't build on it and make their own. But we did two books, one on the Marshall Islands that won Best Book of the Year for the Ethnobotany Society. And then we did one on Yap, which was even larger and more extensive. And we're waiting to publish the one on Pohnpei, which are bigger, much better illustrated, and stronger to withstand being there in, in the Pacific environment, at least for some time. And hopefully the students will appreciate it the illustrations of plants gorgeous. are really, they're, they're beautiful on their own, but you know, they're recognizable because they show the fruits and flowers. Yeah. It reminds me of my late colleague, Arthur Whistler, who was the third person to perish due to COVID here in Hawaii. I want to ask specifics here because we're talking about publications and um, the deep relationship with plants. And what I, for each of you, what would be um, an example of maybe one of the most surprising or interesting or unexpected relationships between a particular plant and a group of people that you found, or one that like you cherish. One in here, which would, two would resonate, and they're both drug plants, quote unquote. Uh, kava, because it has an ancient history and, and uh, forced into obscurity, more or less, mm -hmm. not completely by um, religious groups uh, that were associated with the post-European contact period. Yeah. But uh, in Micronesia, it's only one island where it's traditionally stayed, although it's changed, as I mentioned, and who can use it and so forth. But generally, it's a shrub. It's in the pepper family. It has heart-shaped leaves. 
It's easy to grow, and in fact, it's a fully domesticated plant. By definition, that means it's dependent upon humans for okay. its, at least the cultivar sections, if not the own species, has been selected so, f so long for vegetatively reproducing, taking a cutting of one of the stems which have very distinct nodes, swollen nodes, and cutting a section of that and putting it in an adequately drained but yet moist uh, tropical rainforest or edge of the forest, you're going to get a, a shrub come up, and it's going to be a clone, except for a rare mutation, which does happen, and how we get all these different varieties and colors and so forth, will be basically the same and have the same potency. If you Once it grows a rootstock, you can harvest that after a given period and then bash it, mash it, macerate it, mix it with water, and drink a drink called the kava brew, which is not the most pleasant drink for many people in their first time around, but then the feelings that come with it, the relaxation of the body, the central nervous system, based on the chemical composition of these so-called kava lactones, kava pyrones that are, and maybe some other things that we still don't know about, um, there was a suppression of the rising interest in this and went way beyond the Pacific um, in the era in what late 80s, 90s, and it got banned based on a liver toxicity um, association that uh, has not, I would argue, has not been sufficiently uh, proven. Potentially and, some bad science there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it's attraction for other people, or most of them that are listening to this, is that, wow, here's, here's a drink, uh, or you could chew on it, and, but mainly it comes as a drink in powder form, maybe not as strong, but if it's fresh, and it will relax your body, and it's anti-anxiety to the max. You're just relaxed. Mm -hmm. But unlike, say, with alcohol, where you can get drowsy and fall asleep or get belligerent, nobody gets belligerent on kava. I say nobody, highly unlikely. And you, your mind remains alert, but your body's relaxed. Yeah. And so that can be attractive, but it can also mean that you know you get up and try to walk, and, <laughs> and you shouldn't be driving. Your, le your legs don't line up so good. I mean, full disclosure: the three of us have all been in these ceremonies, right? And or used it. And well, it's so funny. The joke is uh, on Pun Pei, and when you're driving around at night, you see everybody going about ten miles an hour because wow. they're all sakala, nice. like sakala, exactly. But um, it's a traditional um, drug throughout much of Polynesia where it and probably originated in um, the remote part of Melanesia in the eastern Melanesia. These are terms Melanesia, Polynesia, Micronesia that are not outdated completely but are used and come from European or western anthropologists trying to Reductionism, right. different, and they have some relationship to languages and culture, whether it's a paternal, uh, patrilocal, or matrilocal society, etc. About 30 years ago, Roger Green and his colleagues came up with an idea, a, a way to view the Pacific as near Oceania and remote Oceania. And near Oceania is where peoples that came into Australia, came into New Guinea, walked except for perhaps short gaps where they'd have to raft across, walked to the Philippines, walked over much of Southeast Asia, and were there uh, 50,000 years ago or more or less, depending on where it was. And that's near Oceania, and some of those people are the descendants of the Melanesians. It gets complex in the border areas, but beyond a certain point when there were no land that uh, in the Pleistocene, the last ice, uh, ice age periods, 
was uh, all surface and you could literally walk across and, and establish populations. Mm -hmm. There was what we call the deep ocean where you had to have long distance sailing and that included the closer ones, Samoa and Tonga and Western Polynesia. And perhaps before that, people got probably now from the Philippines, the DNA and other things like betel nut and uh, which I can maybe get into the connection to Guam and the Marianas and not so much later to Palau may have been equally long or may perhaps longer. So about 3,000, between three and 4,000 years ago, people uh, were already sailing in and out of the uh, um, islands of Southeast Asia, had a agricultural base of the same plants that are used throughout much of the West, you know, Pacific Islands, taros and bananas and, and yams and the breadfruit and other plants, including their plant of the gods, betel nut, mm -hmm. but not kava. And kava looks like it, it evolved out of a pepper shrubs that are wild, found in uh, perhaps Vanuatu. And Kosrai is an island of 55 square miles. It gets up to about 2,000 feet. It's got some of the lowest tropical rainforest, a fog forest. Yeah, cloud forest. Yeah, cloud forest in the world. It's a steep, and shield volcanoes are usually not that steep, but this one is steep enough so you get wind coming up and it condenses at, at the latitude in the tropics, which is closer to the equator than Hawaii by a number of degrees. You get cloud forest at almost 1,000. Right. feet, so about 300, yeah. 350 um, meters. Which is about what, like we're in Hawaii, you don't usually see that kind of ecosystem until you're about 3,000 feet or so, yeah. That's because of a number of factors, and we have, you know, our dry, super dry side, super wet side. You don't get these super dry sides in the uh, central Caroline Islands. You can get them places like Yap and Palau, you get, you know, the monsoon will have a dry period, which makes them susceptible to fires. fire. Yep. Savannah lands. <laughs> Savannahs, yep, exactly. What? Okay, I'm not going to let this go about uh, kava. Because <laughs> I need to know. I was at one ceremony one time in Fiji with the island's chief and so forth. It was very much a welcome the tourist kind of thing, which of which I was. What is it used traditionally, or how is it used traditionally in ceremony, and what are your thoughts about a depart departures from that and, and, and changing and, you know, like how people are using it today? I, I would imagine in the early phases where it originated, the transcendental experience, you know, the set and setting there is important as what's in the substance, whether it's cannabis or kava or beer exactly. or coffee. Right. And that's the, you know, so it's the quality and quantity of the drug, but it's the set, the psychological condition of an individual. And if in your culture your, your set is, you know, that you have a certain set of supernatural forces, but only certain people can communicate with them. And so you have the, uh, the setting, and the setting would be the kava ceremony. Mm -hmm. um, individual uh, um, use of it in places like Vanuatu probably takes back to the original uses. But as societies became more elaborated and ritualized, we can look at the Samoan uh, ceremony as one that's characterized and been studied by outside so-called objective for, for how it organizes the roles that it plays. In the Samoan ceremony, and you can find that in the Tongan and the Fijian and other Polynesian ceremonies, they were elaborated and they often were among uh, high-ranking individuals mm -hmm. and their seating arrangement 
played a role in distinguishing where they should sit, what language they spoke. Even within Samoan, there's a special high-ranking language that's spoken this to, to distinguish the ranks, the genealogy, and it's the justification or understanding from the cognitive, from the people's point of view, is the highest-ranking individuals are the closest to, to, gods. to the gods, yeah. the gods being the ancestors who were their direct relatives. Mm-hmm. So anyways, it's, uh, that's an anthropologically tinted, tainted, you can say, tainted. interpretation. But you're sitting sure. in the ceremony. Sure. You better know your place. Yeah. And I won't go into, like, the Fijians have a special cord that's made out of uh, twine that it mm-hmm. indicates you can, on which side, you, this and that, that's highly formalized. Okay. And you have a, traditionally, a virgin daughter of the Thai chief who would macerate and, oh, and okay. or chew the Kava rootstock, yeah. where these Kava lactans, and then spit this into a bowl or put it into a bowl, and her virginity was part of a, a belief in purity mm-hmm. and keeping this, the whole thing purified. And when she finished and uh, squeezed out the Kava emulsified with the water, and she had this sometimes it was hibiscus fiber, and other times it was in Hawaii they used a sedge species. But the fibers that we used to actually catch the little pieces of the kava that wasn't broken down enough. Mm-hmm. And then you had that special little unit there that had to be thrown over her back and caught by a young appointed person who had a special rank, and he had to catch that. Sure. And it's all about ritual, sure. finding your place where people could come in steaming over land grabs, adultery, mm-hmm. all the problems we have in, in our society right outside the the office, you know, yeah. wherever. And yeah, mediation, big time mediation. mediations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's like ho molly molly, getting people to overcome the grief or the uh, spoiled uh, affairs and so forth. And so the, the ritual and what's key about the kava from a pharmacological point of view is it relaxes everybody mm-hmm. and you're not going to get up and get into fisticuffs like you might with alcohol in a brawl because it's you're just incapacitated, but yet you're alert. And then you following your feeling, it's a, being relieved of that anxiety is you know, high, some would say. I mean, it's the opposite of, of what I think of, like, I use, a, I use a recreational drugs nowadays, which is a total escapism. I mean, in a sense, you're truly addressing some hard things, right? I mean, from, from what you're describing, and you're getting through some things, and you're finding your place, and... Maybe resolving things, maybe not, but it's not It's not for fun and pleasure, per se. No, <laughs> not. The, today, the relaxation, the happy hour that the Kaaba's become in Pohnpei, where you can it, 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 hear the ringing of the uh, stone, and Pohnpei means upon a stone altar. So the island came together on, on these stones, but that special kind of basalt, flat stone, is pounded with rocks, and the sound is like a large bell, mm-hmm. you know, and that mm-hmm. starts at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock and signals people to the end of work. That's a more modern uh, situation. Sure. It may have been used to signify a special event in the past, but today, you know, the Kava bars have that, and it's become uh, a thing of, like, Kava started to go that route here, and beetle chewing is going that way back into Guam. 
uh, where it's a sign of I'm part of the indigenous culture mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to Identity, do that and participate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, so in the, in the old days, it had to be not so long ago, a high ch a ranking chief had to deliver the first cup of kava yeah. over his hand like this, yeah. looking away to the high ranking chief. We have some pictures and mm -hmm. documents of that. So I um, was asked by a, a girlfriend who had born and raised in, in Marianas, and I don't know, she, we became acquaintances through mutual friends, and I was talking about I wanting to see more of the Pacific. And I had uh, spent my two formative summers, one a whole summer in Halaba Valley, and then after the rainforest on the windward side of Molokai, and then more or less a whole summer in the driest, hottest spot of the islands, near Kauai High to start with, in Puoko and um, surveying the uh, corridor for a highway that was built, finished in 75. We were there in 1970. And I was on the expedition to look for artifacts and burials and so forth, 22 miles survey. So I saw the wet and the dry mm -hmm. and what we were experiencing today in Hawaii. Hawaii is so diverse. Yeah. And that's what one of the things that made me really interesting why I have minded teaching as I will then starting in a week, the natural history of Hawaii for non-science majors called Hawaiian environments. We've got all these different environments. A lot of them are man-made. We can see the, my picture, I'm getting on a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm gonna show a Herb Kane, bless Herb for all the wonderful pictures he's, he did. He's passed away now and one of the three organizers original of the Polynesian Voyaging Society, but he has mm -hmm. a picture which is like Lahaina. And it's a small outrigger canoe coming on with people bringing some large uh, calabasas or ipu filled with probably water or poi and people moving this way. And there's a few the native plants along the coast like ko and cordia subcordata and apakakakai and so mm -hmm. forth. And behind it you can see the little ditches, the awais and the taro patches and on the edges the bananas and some breadfruit and, and pandanas on the edge here. And these are his, what it was like maybe when the first Europeans came in to Lahaina. And that was, when I'm reading this newspaper article today, they're talking about, you've got to expand the taro patches. Bring water in it. Those are not going to burn as easy. It's nothing else. very straightforward. And that's, that's what I'm going to show. I decided I'll start the semester. Saying, no, that's great. Yeah. Come back from this. And this is not native Hawaii. This is native Hawaii from an indigenous cultural point of view. Yeah. But for millions of years, it was completely different. This was a dry environment. And perhaps you had occasional fires, but they probably burned out and they may have been devastating on the local scale if you had a big hurricane. Peely grass is also quite different from Guinea grass. I mean, there's a lot to be said about those environmental changes and what we're dealing with today. Guinea grass almost killed me. Let me get the Kava experience and then come back to the yeah, Hawaii. Yeah, we want to hear about it. Um, so I said, Mark, why don't we go to Micronesia? And I looked it up and said, wow, you can, we can take the uh, island hopper. And then it was a new thing, Continental Airlines. So right, they still do it. To uh, Marshall Islands, spent a short time, just touch base there and on to Pohnpei. And Pohnpei, we just stop over at the airport in Chuuk and then on to Yap which was fascinating at that time to see people coming out to take the uh, baggage. We're wearing malos, long-haired men with 
and it was a, each had their own wooden, um, what would you call it, mm-hmm. holder. Yeah. 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 And For they the had bottom. red mallow, and they were all, mm-hmm. you know, carrying our baggage from back as I was getting off the plane and noticing and going into the little Gap custom house. And it was just a man and his son, who was maybe eight or nine, and his father, both dressed all white, and they were the custom officer and his son. And they're both chewing beetle nut in red, orange color. Yeah, yeah, let's see your passport, yeah? Oh, good, well, welcome to Yap. Walk out, there's a little building that says Bank of Hawaii. And then there's four or five women chatting and walking by and they're wearing big, full skirts. Probably how, shredded Uh how, and nothing Mm -hmm. else. And they're walking by the Bank of Hawaii and I've just come with the mallows and the guys. That was Yap. In, in Pohnpei, we got off the plane and we're looking for some place to stay. And we're on a budget back in those days. Where, you know, there was a hotel Pohnpei, but we couldn't find it because the plane got in late. So we found some what we thought were abandoned shack and just you know got our sleeping bags out and slept there and woke up in the morning. Big Polynesian lady looking over us. And she was just wearing underwear and looking over like, oh, so why'd you stay? You know, and talking about it. And I said, wow, I thought the Micronesians, I didn't know they were that big. <laughs> and you know where it was, Poaka Ride, the area where they brought the islanders from Kapinga Marangi, overpopulated, right. and Nuka Oro. Right. And Kapinga, right. there's two outliers right. of Polynesian in Micronesia. Yeah. Nuka Oro and Kapinga Marangi, right? Yeah. And, and there's an area right near the um, colonia, the main capital urbanized area, where they let the Polynesians stand. Yeah. So tourism had, was very small at the time, 1970. It was just a lovely experience, and, and, and that's before we got to Yap. And so we decided, let's walk. People had told us you gotta see Nan Madal. Now there's no road around the island. It's just a road in and around uh, Colonia. So we started walking, and we walked and walked. And Pohnpei is a radially constructed shield volcano. So there's streams, and it's wet all over the island. It's 200 inches at sea level. It's like Hilo, all the way around, more or less. Yeah. Interesting. And you got you know mountain, uh, montane uh, cloud forest, etc. A lot of it. And so we're walking around, and each stream as we come by, we could hear the... It wasn't for Kava, this was beaters washing clothes. And the women, who were all in lava lavas and nothing else, with their kids who were all naked, swimming in the mm-hmm. pond, and they walk and looking at us. <laughs> we're walking by. And I remember the second or third one we stopped just, it was so serene. And then a man wearing Pretty much like I only had a t-shirt on and shorts, same color as I can remember. And his son was just shorts on and a shirt on. And he had cut a section of a breadfruit root. And he was taking it over to an area not too far away where it was kind of open. He dug a hole in the ground and stuck the section in there of the root and put some leaves on the top and rounded it around. Right. He's vegetatively reproducing a breadfruit tree. Right, right. And I've gone back sometimes and seen that tree. Oh, that's great. So we walked and walked and walked and until like late afternoon and we're walking, hmm, where are we going to stay? There was nothing there, just a little... Yeah, I'm trying to imagine how far there's a map around on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to imagine how far did you get in a day? We went several miles. We were walking, but there was a trail, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. but no road for a jeep or anything. And we'd come by with some people. Casalelia, Casalelia. Oh, the tourists, they're walking. We said, Nan Madal, Nan Madal, Casalelia. 
So we got close to it, and it's getting dark. And suddenly out of the forest coming the other way is a guy about Clay's, maybe an inch or two taller, a little thinner. And he said, what are you guys doing here? You know, and I said, well, we're tourists, and I teach at the University of Hawaii. I'm, you know, I'm a graduate student there, and this is a, she's a student there, and we're going to eventually Guam, and we wanted to see Nan Badal. Well, where are you going to stay? We said, well, we're just going to we'll just camp out on the side of the trail. No, you can't do that. Everybody owns everything. You can't do that. Yeah. Come with me. Really? Yeah, yeah. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer. Okay. My job is to increase the number of pigs in the island. So... We go, go with him. I said, we'll, we'll take care of it. I'll get you set up and stay with some one of my friends in the hamlet that I, you know, working with. He's working with. We'll hear about that. So we get there, and uh, they're going to have they're going to have a little ceremony, a little kava ceremony. So they have a little structure. Took us over there, and people there's about twenty people around, mostly just two older men, probably my age now, just wearing shorts up there. One had been high, was the high ranking. Uh, person in the village. Yeah. Right. And the other was sitting cross-legged. And this was built so there was a platform with some stumps like that. And then there was a, a, just above the ground wooden other platform where some people were pounding the, the kava. Oh, okay. And then below, outside of that was dirt. And that is where so you had the ranking people, and they put us up there as ranking guests. And then you had the common people that were mashing the kava, and it was a woman who was involved in it, too. I remember that. I didn't know at the time that there was a, had previously been a gender separation for who could use it. And they're pounding the kava to be used. They're celebrating this man coming, and the other man who was sitting next to us was supposedly the war hero. He fought for the with the Did Americans. Did you know that you were like had status in this whole group at the time, or only looking back? He, he told us your your special guest brought okay. by me. I just explained oh, okay. to you that they came out of the sky, Polangi or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's yeah, a yeah. Right. Samoan Menway. Word. Yeah, <laughs> Menway. Menway came out and they're here and oh wow, special okay. guest. So we sat down next to them, myself and then Diane over here and then the high chief and the guy that was the maybe 65, 70, and uh-huh. he, he had been fought for the Americans and been kind of a guide for the American army that was or, or trying to resist the Japanese yeah. occupation. What's outside the wooden platform is open, I call it dirt, and that's soil where you don't want it, geographical terms. So I hate when people say, they've got excellent dirt here to grow. No, dirt is like a weed, right. plant yeah. where you don't want it. <laughs> dirt is where soil where you don't want it. It's soiled, you got dirt. <laughs> I, I, you know... <laughs> Just to get people to think about the, you know, yeah, the, no, the, the value of soil. So, in the dirt, were uh, leaning up their heads against the wooden part. Big heads were pigs, about three or four pigs like that. And beyond them, leaning against them, and occasionally getting up to bark, were the dogs. I said, "Wow." Were they alive? Wait a minute. These yeah. pets? And they're yeah, sleeping, they're pets. Or they're yeah, just the, right the next to each other? Pigs are there okay. until there's a festival. Okay. okay. Dogs, yeah. And the dogs are there to right bark. There. And, and But the ranking of the high ranking, the commoners, the pigs, and the dogs. Oh. <laughs> <coughs> that stood up. It was, it was very symmetrical. <laughs> so the, the Kaaba, and he's standing back in the shadows. This is the um, Peace Corps volunteer who was, you know, from Wisconsin. Uh, raised his, his father as a pig farmer. So he oh, took that, that skill for a piece right. to raise more pigs, what he thought. And he <laughs> came up to me and says, all right, Mark, it's coming around now. One thing. I said, what? What? He said, drink it all. And I didn't, he didn't say drink it in one thing, which I did, but he said, drink it all <laughs> and grimace. And I hadn't heard that word from him. Grimace? 
He gave it to the old man, the ranking person, and he drank it. And he gave some to the war hero, and he drank it. And I'm getting nervous, you know. I, what is this stuff? You know, I've heard maybe I've heard of kava a little bit about it, and so forth. I said it's, it's not like cannabis, you know. I say, but it is psychoactive. Said, well, all right, here's a go. Yes. Whoa. And it, no offense, but it was sort of like a lot of phlegm. Yeah, yeah, it's like and that's snot. because of a hundred years ago they started using the mucilla when they strained it through um, hibiscus fiber, pulled off a of oh. hibiscus. Yeah. You have a mucilaginous layer there, and they leave that in, and that made it emulsif- uh, made it kind of cloggy. And then they got it give it a certain kind of flavor. And flavor, some folks they claim it makes it last longer. Okay. And yeah, I mean, who knows? But you've done a lot more than me. But this is my first time. And I, and I went, ooh, it's thick. I went like yeah. this, and everybody around went, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the guy did, did drink good. it. Yeah, he did good. Yeah, he spit it out. Anyways, the next day finished up. That night we went off. He said, "You go with Mister So and So." We went with him. He said, come, I want to show you my... And he brought out some food for us, which was really nice. <laughs> it was poi, baked in an earth oven taro, some yam, some more starch, mm-hmm. and that's about it, you know? Yeah. With, I forget, what, maybe a banana. But it was, I mean, it was substantive. There's no doubt about it. But I'm saying, there's not that much difference between the taro and the breadfruit <laughs> and so forth. But um, then he said, one more thing before you go to sleep. Um, I'm going to show you my pig. He took me out and he had a cement slab and a little fence around it. Right. Big pig. And he said, that's my pig. And he had a name for it or something. That lives until I die. Then it gets cooked for my special <laughs> oh, nice. festival. So I said, that's something that he appreciates that he said to see a continuity of their life. Yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah. I love how it's all everybody knows their place. It's just it's it's clear. There's no like ambiguity. It's like everyone knows where they're supposed to be, where they're supposed to sit, you know, the status no. of the pigs and the dogs and no. like when they're going to get eaten. Now 50 years later anybody can use it and yeah. there's lots of kava bars and so mm-hmm. forth. And it's a big deal to go and get your kava and then it became a environmental issue which Bill and I wrote about. Right. Uh, and that was because it became a commodity to yeah. sell and make some money mm-hmm. under the cash crop, and whether it was in Tonga and Fiji, they, and Pompey was getting into it and exporting some. Plus, they had this now that anybody could drink it, they had the market expanded and people would pay for it. So, you had kava bars, you know, there, uh, Sakao is the name in, in Pompeii, and, and Suka, Seka in uh, Kosrayan, where you're not allowed to supposedly use it at all. But, mm-hmm. Well, I won't say any more about that. Uh, so the Sakao um, has changed and become more more common. It led to major local deforestation oh, yeah. right? because of the cash, of the cash yeah. crop. Well, and the drought, it was a combination, yeah. right? Yeah. First of all, people were ripping off other people. And it reminded me of what was going yeah. on in, in Hawaii with cannabis, which right. was, of course, highly illegal, but it was the biggest cash crop. Yeah. Even at the heights before the collapse of right, sugarcane, right, right, which played right. a role in our fire syndrome. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Loss of all that right. vegetation. There were people who were going further into the forest mm-hmm. to clandestinely grow it. I had a little insight to what the mental aspect of hiding your forest, because one average common man, young man, who I ran into and who wanted to show me his 
his wife and his kids and his family. He knew what I was doing, was making writing a book on it, and Bill Rayner he knew, and so he introduced him. He's a young farmer, young married, a couple of small kids. And he talked and showed me some of his plants. I said, yams. He said, oh, I grow, I grow yams. I catch fish. I'm a really good fisherman. I catch mm-hmm. fish. I bring fish for my wife. I support my family. And I farm. And I grow. You see some of the plants here. I said, well, where are your yams? Said, oh, no, those are yeah. hidden. Yeah. You know, and it's a big art of how you can make this soil fry, not dirt, soil friable so yeah. it grows. And you build the structure around it, support the the vine and there's in that inherent in that farming system to be hidden with something that's valuable right. and the yams were not necessarily eaten in fact the big yams are prestige yams and that's other huge parts. you can't even imagine some of the yeah. photos of these things they, are like, there's a good one in the book of six yeah. guys or four guys carrying a huge yam and there's places islands in Fiji where there's a similar thing they have I mean I think it's like so it's such an insight you know someone who didn't grow up you know, in Polynesian culture at all, even though I'm born and raised here. But thinking about, like, just how important ceremony is, you know, with objects and with plants, right? And, like, when you remove those things and they become this other thing, you know, we're at a loss, right? I guess that's sort of like an understatement. And Pompeii, like, one of the... It took me a long time being there to kind of get that. But part of the thing with the Sakao bar is that it removes ceremony, Mm -hmm. but... It, that part of it actually, because the ceremony is responsibility too, right? Well, one of the villages with the family, I said, he happened to be the, the father of the family that I lived with, mm-hmm. this high chief in the village where, where I stayed. And, um, you know, in that position, you can't just walk into someone's home. Like you literally cannot oh. step foot because if you do, there's the protocol that comes around that. And so he's like, I'll be out at the Sakao bar. <laughs> you want to come? I'll be down the road on there. He's like, I can't go. And then, but I went in with his wife and we got to hang out and meet the family and talk story but he's like I can't and then later on he explained this to me he's like if I were to step into their NAS their little family kind of meeting house they would have to go harvest a cow slaughter pigs it would become this whole thing and so that kind of from his perspective he's like thank god the cow bars down the road because I get to hang out I get to go to the village and meet friends and not have it be part of that so ritualized I mean there's got to be I mean, it's just so interesting how, like, Kate, we talked about this with Kate Kuhi about the evolution. You were talking about Oli, and, you know, mm-hmm. she's a ritualist. And is teaching everybody. Right, everybody to open that up to folks. She's opened yeah. it up to everybody to do that. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's so cool how things can evolve and and still have meaning, you yeah. know, still be rooted in something that has cultural significance. Thanks for sharing that, yes. uh, Clay, <laughs> with me about, you know, the NOS and moving in, in and out of that. It shows you the importance of adaptation, humans, yeah, how we totally. adapt. Right. We're in a sad situation with the uh, horrible fire situation, but we'll adapt. How we adapt is the key thing, and if we can adapt to realizing for a more sustainable, long-term society, because there are the arguments against these bars, um, especially in places where they're not regulated and haven't had the experience of that kind of a, a uh, a drug or a psychoactive right. substance like right. in Australia where they've lost all their land and don't have their land. Right. Places like Pompeii, the people have their land. Mm-hmm. And that's an essential aspect of your land and your language. Yep. It starts with the word and then you have your land that produces for you and it can be passed on within a structure of how the society develops. Um, 
But uh, thank you for the opportunity to um, blab away. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, totally, gosh. totally. I'm sure you have other questions. I mean, one or two. I just have one maybe yeah. follow up on this. Sure. Is just you already talked about this a little bit about talking about the history of Lahaina, starting mm-hmm. with your mm-hmm. your class that you're going to be teaching in a, in a week or so here. Uh, what are some other ways that you've adapted your course? I mean, based on what the students are coming in, are the students coming in asking different questions these days? I mean, my experience is that they see what's wrong. I mean, they see yeah. things not working, and I'm yeah. just curious how you've adapted your teaching to sort of help people figure stuff out. Well, I've been talking about things going wrong for 50 years, <laughs> uh, or the path that we're on, uh, and all the... Uh, in one hand, one perspective, glorious uh, innovations of the internet and uh, all the techniques that bring us uh, potentially much closer together, but also potentially uh, much more distant and, in fact, sometimes at end at, at not such good relationships between one another. So um, there are those that uh, want to deny this or deny that, others that want to accentuate this, and both of them are exaggerating the other side. More than ever, we need to come together, and if it takes a horrible disaster like uh, the fire, which brings together man, I would say human-induced situations, along with just, uh, you know, some call it the perfect storm, it just happened. You, you know, I don't know if many people are following. I just picked it up that Dora is moving on and will turn into a typhoon. And that normally doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. We get most of our hurricanes, as I understand it, within the 150-year purview of meteorological information. And now we have evidence of a hurricane coming across Maui back in the 1870s. It right. went through the newspapers. But in any case... Uh, basically, lucky you live in Hawaii because we're in our northern, mm-hmm. at the extreme of the tropics. Right. Most of these hurricanes that developed during warm water, El Nino years in particular, off of Mexico, will either swing up into the colder California cold current and die off, so to speak. Normally, the other pathway is to move out into the Pacific towards Hawaii, but as they move into the colder waters, they dissipate. Right. The waters are getting warmer. That's the main fear that I have. The other one is that most of the track of these stay within the warm water because it's the warm water that makes them generate the um, low-pressure system and acts like a, you know, a turbine and yeah, sucking the air in. So if they stay along, along, they follow the track of the warm currents and move towards the western uh, sides of the oceans, Atlantic and Pacific, and that's where they have to turn based on the continents. And that's the main track. So you have a place like Yaptu, especially the Marianas, and uh, you know even Taiwan to say even southern Japan, they have you know hit by, and of course the Philippines, 200 mile an hour wind. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to, to imagine. We don't want to, but we have to really take it more seriously. And if it's a positive, and not necessarily a silver lining, a sad, and hopefully um, something will generate to make people say we have to worry about um, cutting off energy at the right time, you know, which apparently may not have happened, growing the right plants, making a big effort to get the alien grasses, and how are we going to get rid of Kohali? It's got to be a biological, unless we do some kind of genetic engineering, but we've got to get rid of that plant. It turns out Kiabi, which we did a study on, um, Tim Gallagher is now curator of the Bishop Museum, on Kiabi, which is actually a Peruvian native plant, 
with a super deep taproot. It's sort of like um, Kohali <laughs> uh, on steroids. It grows much larger and it's a, up to 100 foot deep taproot. And that's how it survived on the groundwaters coming out of the Andean glaciers in the super dry, you know, leeward part of the Peruvian country. Mm-hmm. And by the coast there is super dry and it has that cold current, except during El Nino, which brings up warm and that's when dangerous. But that Kiabi was introduced here and took off and spread because the cattle eat the pods. But the seeds are so darn hard, they go right through the cattle and that's what spread all the way all over the island. Right. And uh, probably the same thing with Kiabi, too, with horses and cattle and mules and sheep and goats and so forth. And then the way in winds, you got this. So it gets in there, getting rid of it. But it turns out, did you know that Kiabi is, if you see, except along the coast, the Juliana species, so Prosopis juliana versus Prosopis pallida, that's the interior one, that one is not reproducing the seeds because it's Bruchid beetles. Oh, it's getting attacked. Oh, yeah. So there's no, people haven't really recognized. We put that into our Pacific Science article. That was right. a key finding is, show me some kiabi that's not coppice back from something that's been right. cut and is a, a seedling coming up. It hasn't been, the seeds haven't been destroyed so that you don't have any seedlings. The reason it's not noticed is these species of prosopuses or mesquites, they live long periods of time right. and yeah. then come back. You know, one I saw in uh, the slopes of the Andes when I taught for UH in Mendoza, Argentina, the, the, the name of this tree in the center of the town was called Millenaria. Oh, wow. Uh, Right. It was a thousand-year-old tree, right. and it was, that's a mosquito. I mean, you could think there was, you know, probably a slightly different species because they have lots of different species, yeah. prosopis and, and um, mesquite genus, which I forgot. But uh, anyways, those are the key things we have to deal with. And next time, if you want to talk more about psychoactive drug plants <laughs> and their histories. <laughs> you only covered one. Yeah. Really? Really. But we did pretty good pretty comprehensive. There is a strong attraction of humans to altering consciousness yeah. and the origins of perhaps religion, the origins of, uh, of a lot of things. I mean, because we all can suffer agony and uh, yeah. uh, of of old age and yeah. so forth. And so pain relief is yeah. a blessing. That's one yeah. of the things like opium popping, even cannabis, kava. Right. Um, and then you have the commonality and getting togetherness. And that's where beetle nut plays such yeah. a role. And right. Sharing it in, in, in the life stages that we go through. The psychoactive plants are often keystone in there. Um, illumination of what life after death. Right. And that's a big issue now across the United States. Oh, rites of passage as well, yeah. like so oh, coming into age and yeah. being accepted. Marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Birth, puberty, marriage, mm-hmm. ch- children, and then senescence and I don't want to talk about that. No, 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 we don't need to talk about that. But no, it's true. And the people that are, you know, how we uh, connect it's to these things, the way it can be healthy is so much to do with the setting, as you're yeah, saying. Yeah. And that's what's really like we see eroded in so right. many of these places. Yeah. And not disturbed. And, uh, you know, like when shrooms, people are going out and picking these um, cow dung species, and they're still doing it. And then... Uh, 90% of them would have, uh, you know, no problem, but maybe five to two percent, you have a freak out because they were they're set. They were psychologically feeling being bullied in school, being bullied by their parents, uh, lost, not prepared uh, for a romantic, you know, disillusion, etc. Like that, and they're not in the. That's not a time 
to, to do that. And they're usually within the, as you mentioned, Melissa, in a ceremonial setting. And that sets a lot of the yeah. decorum. Even in a, in, a, in a, what do you call it, a cow bar. Right. That's yeah. a place you can go and you're, you don't have to kill that pig and get it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> there to relax. Fishing, right? A little more. Well, less, um, less labor intensive maybe, but um, no, I mean, it just it just speaks to like the fragmentation, right? The human condition where we're at with just the separation from each other, from our environment, from from the uses, from the meaning, and the meaning of things like we talked about with, with Kekuhi. It's just so important. Reconnect us, yeah. The traditions and, and so forth. So before you throw the baby out with the bathwater, understand what the implications are. Right. No, thanks so Thank much. Thank you, Dr. Merlin, for um, speaking with us today and for just like painting the picture of um, you know that time period and for the work you've done in the Pacific and the work you continue to do with your students. Yeah, congratulations on the 50th year of teaching. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's really about the people who established ongoing sustainable societies and uh, rather than seen as marginalized and uh, not important. They may be the lesson that saves us in the end. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.